In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The parable this morning comes at a crucial moment in St. Matthew's Gospel. Just before this passage, our Lord makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the morning of Palm Sunday. And today's passage comes just a few days later, probably Tuesday or Wednesday of Holy Week. Um, Christ has just cleared the money changers out of the temple. So tensions are mounting, and people are becoming more divided. Christ uses an image that would be familiar with his listeners. It's taken from the prophet Isaiah, and we heard that in the first reading today. Hear another parable, says the Lord. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Isaiah uses virtually the same language to speak about Israel. The prophet depicts, depicts God as a friend who plants a vineyard in fertile ground. He spaded it, cleared it of stones, planted the choicest vines. Within it, he built a watchtower and hewed a wine press. So let's consider first how the landowner is operating in the parable. First, he buys the field. But then what does, it, what does he do? He does all the hard work, doesn't he? He plants a vineyard. He puts a hedge around it so that the vineyard is protected. He digs a wine press. He builds a tower. Only after that is all done does the landowner actually lease his property to tenants. And then those tenants have one job, to utilize all the work of the landowner to bear fruit. Their job is essentially to watch, to care for the vineyard, to make sure the landowner's work hasn't been for nothing. It's a great It isn't a great deal, is it? The tenants get everything given to them. They virtually don't have to put in any effort except to show up. So let's see how they take this opportunity. The parable continues. When vintage time drew near, he, the landowner, sent his servants to the tenants to obtain his produce. The owner of the vineyard will send three servants at first who are treated terribly by the tenants, right? They're beaten, they're stoned, And again, the master sends more servants, and they're treated likewise. Already we should notice something odd about how the landowner is acting. It would have been reasonable, after the first servant was killed, to call the guard and then arrest all the tenants. But instead, he just sends more. He sends more people off to their deaths in an effort to give the tenants another chance. He's so patient with them, giving them every opportunity to make the right decision. Finally, he sent his son to them, thinking, they will respect my son. And we can see Christ predicting his own death, which of course would follow just in a few days. And in so doing so, he reveals his identity to his listeners. He is the final son of the parable, whom the vineyard owner will send in his mercy in hopes that this time the tenants will do what is right. Christ is the final attempt from God to draw his people back to himself, to give them yet another chance to repent and to start anew. But it's the final chance. Christ then turns the parable on the Pharisees, and he asks them what the vineyard master would do to those who killed his only son and heir. He will put those wretched men, they said, to a wretched death, and lease his vineyard to other tenants who will give him produce at the proper time. Then the Lord speaks plainly to them. He predicts that the kingdom of God will be taken from them because of their refusal to accept him as the Son of God. 
And this statement is immensely important in the Passion narrative because it's the charge that the Jews will bring against Christ before Pilate. So the parable reveals two important lessons. The first is that God is immensely patient with us. So patient every day with each family of ours, always calling us back to himself. God is so persistent with us. He nags us. He prods us. He encourages us to do what is right. He gets up all in our business like our grandmother, right, and guilts us into going to Mass on Sunday. Now, we've been doing battle against God all along, every day going back to habits of sin as if they meant nothing, every day driving the nail further into the hands of Christ, furthering our distance from him, from our own good, And yet he just stands there. He never tires of the effort it takes to win us back to himself. And yet he never removes our freedom. He doesn't want us to choose him out of force, but out of love. And love requires freedom. And we all know that, right? We can't force someone to love us. And nor does God wish to force us to love him. So he dotes on us. He sends us happy moments when we don't really deserve them. And we never really do, after all. That's why we call it grace. Grace is a free gift. We never deserve it. But through it, he draws us to himself. Then the second lesson of the parable is that despite God's numerous attempts to draw us back to himself, if we do not choose to return to him, we will continue to become more and more hardened against the power of grace until eventually all is lost. And I've been talking about this for a few weeks now. The parable is a warning Think about our sinful habits. We start small, right, with our venial sins. One small act. Then we allow a second. Then we allow a third, and it's no longer noticed by us. Now, the grace doesn't lessen as the weeks go by, but the habit becomes more impressed on our character by every succeeding failure. The first messenger is beaten. The second, wounded. The third, killed. Then at last comes the crucial temptation to mortal sin. And with it comes grace, a stronger impulse of grace, an impulse that we know can give us strength enough to resist, but the habit is there and how often it conquers us. And when the moment of our final hour, our last temptation comes, will we have strength enough then to resist failing? Will in that moment the nursery rhymes we memorized in catechism be enough for us? Will our grandmother's nagging then be enough to secure our soul? What is to be said when all that is left for us is ourselves? Will we be able to rely on ourselves? Or will we have wasted the gifts and the grace of God to the point that our own character, our own ability to choose what is right is so mutilated that it's nearly impossible for us to make the right choice? God has been extravagant in his love for us. There's absolutely nothing we could do that would bar us from returning to his grace in this life should we choose to make use of the means he gives us. The landowner in the parable is unsparing in his attempts to help the tenants do what is right. He sends so many of his servants to them, to their deaths, knowing they would not convert. And he did so anyway. Why? To give them a chance. To give us a chance to come back to him. And when that doesn't work, he sends his own son. God the Father sends us his only begotten son every day in the Holy Eucharist. And how do we receive him? Do we beat him, torture him, reject him by approaching the altar with dirty consciences, 
never once acknowledging our sins, never seeking his mercy, never attempting to overcome our attachments to sin? What shall God do with us when at the last we have exhausted all the means of conversion with no fruit? Notice the near infinite patience that the landowner has in the parable. Again and again and again he gives the tenants the choice to convert. And as each moment of grace is refused, it isn't that the succeeding moments of grace becomes fainter and fainter. No, every time the the landowner reacts, he gives a greater chance. And the last is the best chance. Since Almighty God came down from heaven himself to bring us back to him. Indeed, the further someone strays from God, the more powerful are the motions of grace which God will use to bring us back. But he never interferes with our freedom. And that's the point of the parable. In the end, it is our choice. It is always our choice. It's our choice if we will cooperate with the extravagant means of grace that is offered to us by the Father. It's our choice if we will accept Christ and his kingdom or if we will reject it to our own demise. Praise be Jesus Christ now and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.